As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, this is the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wizencroft, and today we ask what's next for the FA after Chairman Greg Clark steps down amid controversy. The injury nightmare continues for Liverpool. We'll ask, is Jude Bellingham an England legend in the making? And Scotland prepare for their biggest game in well over a decade. To help me chat through it all, fine journalists from The Times, as always, James Restall, Jonathan Northcroft and Gregor Robertson. Hello, guys. How are you doing? How are you? I'm nervous, I'll be honest. I'm a little bit nervous. I know, I was, was going to say, you, you don't seem as, as, as relaxed as you usually do. <laughs> That's a big one tonight. Yeah, I mean, normally you kind of all hope is gone with, with Scotland by this stage, but we have a we have a chance. We have a chance. They're saying there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm nervous. I'm looking forward to it, though. It's the hope that kills you, isn't it, Gregor? The hope that kills. It always has been. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. And we'll come back and talk about Scotland a little bit later in the program as well. Uh, but I, I felt like we had to start with the, the thing that has dominated the back pages and the headlines for the last few days. I, I feel for the England manager, Gareth Southgate, because it seems like every time there's a squad now, there's a major piece of news that he has to deal with. And, and I mean, honestly, he should be a PR advisor to Boris Johnson because the most diplomatic advances always come out from Gareth Southgate. He's had to deal with Harry Maguire in Greece this year, uh, Mason Greenwood and Phil Foden's indiscretions. Last time around, it was Jose talking about Harry Kane's playing time. And now the FA chairman, Greg Clark, standing down uh, after using inappropriate language while speaking to a parliamentary select committee of all places. I mean, just looking at the news this week and, and what has gone down uh, with Greg Clark, does anyone think it was an overreaction either from the public or from the media that some felt maybe it wasn't that bad? I don't think it was an overreaction at all, actually. I, I think it's not just this incident. I think it's important to point out, whilst that was a completely gaff-laden uh, address to the MPs, um, this is not the first time he's made gaffes like this um, and when you're the head of an organisation that is trying to uh, bring football into the 21st century you, it, it's unacceptable to speak in those terms and, uh, and and the FA needs a leader who is more in tune and in touch with football in the 21st century and, uh, and for those reasons and the other gaffes he'd made during his tenure and the other mistakes he'd made during his tenure, it sort of felt like this was very much the straw that, that broke the camel's back in many ways. I think what's important, and James has, has raised it, is that this wasn't just about words. Um, this wasn't just about somebody misspeaking, which I think is what Greg Clark is trying to present this as. It was the attitudes behind those those words. Um, you know, the, the way he talked about... Um, I mean, the mind just the mind just boggles. But the way he talked about you know careers and the difference between black ambitions and Asian ambitions and and so on just sounded like something cliches from out of the nineteen seventies. The way he talked about gay people, the way he talked about women. Um, this, these weren't just words. This weren't just inadvertent kind of mistakes. This just revealed somebody that's very out of touch. And as James pointed out, this isn't just the, this isn't the first time with Greg Clark. His appearance in the DCMS committee when um, he was trying to defend the FA over Mark Sampson and Enia Luca was absolutely cringeworthy. I think you saw a man that was was out of out of touch then. My experience of Greg Clark from a sort of journalist point of view has been very much one of those um, blazers who 
is very keen to jump into the limelight when England are doing well. We saw him around the the the, the World Cup in Russia, um, and um, uh, and and not so not so keen when when things aren't so good. Um, he was involved in Project Big Picture, trying to trying to set up. Um, you know the, 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 that that set the ball rolling there, and that all seemed to be motivated by an attempt to grab some money and perhaps some power for for the FA, um, and just some just just somebody that, that that speaks of the old FA. You know, a, 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 an apparatchik, a, a guy in a position for the sake of the the, the power um, who doesn't really, you know, for, for my money anyway. I, 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 sort of add any value to the organization and i think this is an opportunity for them to 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 go in a new direction and get someone in but what i would say is that in, in 20 years of covering england closely this is by no means the first time we've been here with the football association it's by no means the first time a chairman or a chief executive had to resign that the fa's looked ridiculous and and, and out of touch uh, i think we're greg dyke on on tv today saying you know, recalling his time as chairman, trying to reform it and how futile that was. So we go around in circles and someone like Gareth Southgate just <laughs> uh, is, is well used to now um, having to, to kind of be front of house and, and, and handle all the stuff that's flying from the organization he worked for. And, and, and my final point would be, you know, the FA is not, you know, this is one face of the FA. There's, there's a lot of people who work for that organization who are um, of high caliber, determined to see change, who would have cringed and felt really let down by Greg Cook. So we can't say that the FA is all a bunch of silly old blazers, but they've got a habit of, of putting <laughs> that type of person out in the front of the house. We'll talk about the structural issues in a moment and uh, who might be next, who might come in as well, and some of the big names being touted early on. Um, but I did want to pick up on the point that you made about Project Big Picture, because listening to Greg Clark talk uh, to the parliamentary committee earlier this week, I listened to the whole thing a few hours, Richard Masters of the Premier League and Rick Parry of the EFL as well, talking about the possible bailout and lack of action on that so far, which is another topic altogether. Maybe we'll get into it. Um, but I was already thinking Greg Clark's got to go before he started saying any of this stuff. When he explained that he'd been to 18 meetings around Project Big Picture, hadn't revealed it to the, to the clubs, suddenly it had dawned on him 18 meetings later that this was going to be some sort of power grab or a coup by the big clubs. I, I found remarkable, to be perfectly honest. I mean, the idea that the big clubs wanted more of a share of the votes, um, 18 meetings later, I'm not really sure that would have come up that far down the line. I mean, let's be realistic. That would have been the first thing said, look, we're happy to discuss all the various ways that we can do great stuff for football in England. But we're not going to do any of it unless we get more of a share of the votes. That probably would have been meeting one. So it came across, and it wasn't just Greg Clark on the day, totally false. And I was just like, this guy has to go. I mean, what, like, you know, the idea of backroom meetings going on in football, you know, I feel like a conspiracy theorist, but ultimately that's what has been going on. Um, and, and it was going to consolidate the power into six clubs. I mean, you're Greg Clark, you run the FA, you deliver football to the, the nation. Thousands of clubs, honestly, and you're you're that concerned with six clubs, and ultimately, as you say, Johnny, it was about what the FA could get out of it as well. And as soon as it became apparent that it was more about the Premier League than the FA, it was time that he went. Well, look, I'm probably going to distance myself from this because it's not going to look great. I mean, I was listening to it, just thinking this guy has to go, and, and almost thankfully, he did it for me. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't going to fire him, but you get the point. I think to be fair, if if you look around. There's a kind of crisis of leadership across football right now. The senior kind of roles in in the FA, the PFA, and the Premier League, all all pending. The senior appointments are pending now, and you know, look around and think, where where, where are the kind of dynamic sort of forces for good good in the game going to come from? Um, and yeah, I completely agree. I think that that was kind of gobsmacking really that he was willing to he was part of a conversation I, I I also still think it was pretty gobsmacking whether there was a game plan or not for Rick, pa Rick Parry's involvement in that you know the idea that they're willing to cede or enter a discussion to seek control of the running of English football to six clubs is extraordinary so yeah that put him in on very thin ice for me and with regards to the you know the, the language he used I think you know <laughs> 
it's one thing in isolation you can say is a, is a possibly a slip of the tongue or something, but it's, it's clear that this was a, it kind of betrayed these sort of his ignorance maybe, but whether it's just really how high up his agenda is is this and therefore is it in the, is it in the FAs? That really is what that, 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 uh, that kind of gaff laden uh, discussion betrayed i think is that it, you know it, everything comes from the top and so the the fa are 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 doing you know they're taking positive steps now uh, to you know to promote, promote diversity in the organ in their organization but it kind of all feels like it's been done because this is a, a moment in time where this is a huge topic of discussion and uh and they need to be doing it they need to be seen to be doing it so you know I, I feel that he probably had to go and it was a kind of cumulative effect as well. It's interesting what you say there, Gregor, about um, about Clark being the front man because, I mean, um, the, the FA does do a lot of good work um, in, in, on diversity. I mean, we, I, I remember earlier this year before the pandemic, um, which seems like a lifetime ago, going to Wembley for a, an LGBT history month event and Greg Clark was presenting and that invited LGBT fan groups um, from clubs up and down the country and activists and journalists. And um, it was, in many ways, when I arrived, I was actually quite, I, I couldn't quite believe that this is, this is the FA and we're at Wembley and we're having an event to mark um, LGBT representation in football. And I thought this is, this is, this is brilliant. Um, unfortunately, um, Clark, as well-intentioned as the event was, did make a couple of gaffes while he was speaking. It just felt like this, as well-intentioned as you are hosting this event, there was a, a bit of me that was just saying, you're not the right front man for, the, for, for taking this organisation forward in the, in the 21st century. And, and I think, you know, we'll probably go on to discuss who should take over, but I think it needs to be somebody who's more in touch with football and how football looks now and how football should look going forwards and how football wants to be, you know, how who football should be representing, which is everyone. There are names being touted, as I said already. Uh, the chair of the FA's Inclusion Advisory Board, the former Chelsea and Celtic defender Paul Elliott is one of them, as is the FA's Director of Women's Football, Baroness Sue Campbell, and uh, lots of people in the public eye, I guess, saying Queen's Park Rangers Director of Football, Les Ferdinand, former England striker, should be considered as well. Gareth Southgate, I know speaking about it yesterday, I think he was very quick to dampen down talk of a glitzy name. You know, he, he, he made painstakingly, I guess, um, efforts to talk about Paul Elliott's um, desire to embed himself within football administration over the previous decade. Um and almost highlighted that we need someone who's operated at a very high level before, but has been involved for some time with football administration, almost, you know, sent out a job descriptor there just because you played football for England or, you know, you present match of the day or whatnot, you're not going to be necessarily the right person for this job. Um, and it maybe it was a bit of a message to the journalists as well. Yeah. Stop saying your favorite ex player and start <laughs> thinking really credibly about who, who should be taking over. That's um, a serious message though, because they, it, it keeps being trumpeted. It, it blows my mind. I mean, how how you can be qualified just because you're a, a big name, you had a good career in football. A savvy chairman would surround himself or herself with people of a variety of experience and backgrounds. And that can be someone who has experience of being a professional footballer and knows what it's like to be in a dressing room. But you don't have to have done it to, to hold that position. No doubt. Is it maybe part of what happened with Greg Clark this week that people maybe say change the mould entirely? You know, you've had very similar suits be in this role before, or all older white males, and they're almost looking for the mould to be totally shattered with someone who looks, sounds, and, and feels different to lead the organisation. I think I think the first thing you need to do is is understand where this person is or how this person's going to be appointed and that's <clears throat> that's when you get to the fact that people like greg clark end up doing the job because the new fa chairman is going to be essentially approved or elected by the fa council and then you look at the fa council which is about 100 members 
Um, it's a, a collection of, I mean, have a look at the list of names on the website. You know, I, I was doing it this morning, but it's a, it's, it's a mind boggling collection. You get people like Major W.T.E. Thompson representing the British Army or Wing Commander Hope representing the RAF, Dr. Little from Cambridge University. And then you've got Alan Irvin randomly representing managers, um, Uriah Rennie, David Ellery. I mean, it's, there's about 120 of them. Most of them are local county FA people or representing, um, you know, some sort of smaller group within within the FA, the supporters reps on there. But the point I'm making is that the, the chairman tends to be somebody who can go to, you know, has basically established a power base within these hundreds of people by going to dinners, by, by going to functions around the country, by doing all the kind of the glad handling and, and the kind of, you know, small scale local council political stuff that needs to be done to get the support. And that's why you end up at a position where the, the chair people tend to be, um, you know, that, that type of person. And I think what's clear is we need somebody completely new because that old world, that FA council world is, is kind of how Britain used to be run. Uh, and it's not fit for purpose in, in, in 2020. The problem is that, you know, Greg Dyke and other people have tried to change the FA. They've not been able to. So how do we get a chairman that comes from outside that structure? And, and we don't want government to impose one. You know, I'm sure the DCMS would, would love to, but, but um, that, that's, that's a kind of a double-edged sword as well. Personally, I, I don't know about that. I think this almost could tie into the discussions we've been having in recent months about the structures of English football. Um, and I know this is pie in the sky stuff and it's bigger and it's not going to happen this time, but the FA is has lost much of its power and it's the Premier League is a more powerful organisation now than the FA. And there needs to be a fundamental look at the, the power and where it's, it resides in English football. And the FA could be such a kind of force for good and it could be some you know it could be that the government have involvement in in handing the FA more power make it making it the kind of independent regulator that 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 a lot of people think the, the game requires so you know again this is that would take that's a long that's going to be a long-running discussion but I think there are although the FA's structures just now are archaic and and as, as you say that that is how they come to appoint the next the next chairman there is a broader discussion about, you know, what the FA's role is now in football going forward. Well, I, I would, I would say as well. I think that it, it, on, a, on a practical sense, it, it does. It, it, whoever takes over needs to be someone I would think with a background in administration to a degree. Given that, you know, looking at uh, reading the Times this morning, looking at the the intray, you've got the finances of football post COVID. You've got the, the 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 aftermath and continuing discussion of Project Big Picture and the reshaping of English football. You've got the World Cup bid for 2030 that um, that England and the home nations are, 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 are lodging. And and then also there's um, work permits and, and Brexit. So it's a huge, it's a huge intray for whoever comes in. And I think we, there, there is a debate to be had. And I think you're right, Gregor, to say that this could be, a you know, that there, there should be a watershed moment when we look at how um, the power balance in football is... Is, is set out going forward, but but equally, I think in the short term there is a there is a very large intray for whoever comes in, and I think I think whoever it is needs to have um, a, a solid background in administration. I would think to tackle all that. It's a complicated um, brief because you, you're right, James. You need to be able to administrate and, and, and deal with big issues like that and, and represent the game on, on a kind of governmental or, or national level. There's the England team, of course, there's the, that we all think about, but there's bits that get forgotten. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's the grassroots game, there's looking after the, the essential interests of kids, of amateur footballers, all that kind of stuff, um, and almost standing against the, the big money and the, and the professional game. Um, and... And, and, and sort of speaking up, I guess, for ordinary footballers or, or, or trying to work for ordinary people who are interested in football. There's, there's, a lot, there's a lot to it. And I think you need to be a candidate that can do all of that. And, and that, for that, you need personality and, and charisma. And you need to be in touch with, with Britain and, 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 and people as, 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 as things are now. It's, it's really, it's, when you start to write it down, it's a really difficult job description. But, you know, 
we we are at a point where it can't just be somebody's been to the right amount of dinners who gets ushered through. Maybe Gregor's right that it's it's, it's a blue sky thinking moment where we we try and think. Um, you know, who do we want to represent football in this country? Who 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 could who could who's almost like the kind of unity person that could could bring everything together? And I must admit, looking at names being thrown up, I'm, I'm not. I don't see anyone at the moment, apart from Gareth Southgate, which I think the Sun suggested today, <laughs> tongue in cheek. But they're probably right. I mean, I can't see anyone really credible who brings everything together and has the charisma to 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 do all the 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 the, the, the stuff that needs to be done. Uh, we look at the sort of you know we talk about systemic issues in in organisations across sectors. Football like, is no different. Um, do we truly believe that someone who is LGBT or BAME, for want of better terms, or um, female is going to get through an FA Council that is eighty five percent ish? It seems on the face of it, um, white, male, and heterosexual. Do you mean? Do you think are they going to be uh, someone like that going to be appointed? Do you think going through the process and being judged by that group of people is is appropriate? Well, no. I mean, that brings us back to the structures of the FA. It's none of it's it's archaic. It's of another age. Um, so, absolutely not. But there is a clear kind of will and uh, and desire in football to to not have this happen again or any more, to have someone who is more in touch with with football and, and broader society and, it's, and the issues that we're currently living through. So um, I would just hope that that gets through. Um, I, I, who knows whether it will or not? I mean, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying I hold out much hope of that. I think when Greg Dyke got appointed, he was a sort of external candidate that was so compelling, or they thought at the time anyway, that that, that was sort of pushed through. So despite the archaic structure, I think if somebody really good can be found, um, there can be a momentum that will, you know, sort of gather that that, that the political obstacles could be overcome. But, but, you know, there's a need to find that right candidate palpably. We'll see what they do, the FA. It's a massive decision, I think, um they could easily get it wrong and be left in a similar cycle. And again, whoever comes in, you know, talking about the, the structures that we have, you know, someone is going to have to have a, a very strong personality to go in there, um, be, be firstly accepted through this system. And then when they get there, want to basically break it in two, because the people, of course, who are very comfortable within that system are the ones that are going to have to vote them through and then change it. So it's going to be very difficult to, for someone to sit down in an interview process and say, yeah, all of your jobs have too much responsibility or too much say or need new faces. And by the way, can I have a job, please? But um, we'll see. We'll see. Um, a, a difficult time for Gareth Southgate off the pitch in terms of what's going on with Greg Clark. Issues for him on it as well, not just the way England play and trying to find a, a system and their next three matches against the Republic of Ireland, Belgium and Iceland, um, but injuries and, and a major injury for him in terms of Liverpool defender Joe Gomez because his defenders aren't playing very well at all at the moment, Gareth Southgate. Probably a bigger injury for Jurgen Klopp, whose defenders just aren't playing at the moment because of injury. And he's lost another one after losing the, the best centre-half in world football, Virgil van Dijk. Fabinho, who was cover, he's gone as well. Is this injury to Joe Gomez? And we don't know the full extent to it, but lots of papers reporting today that it could be a season-ending injury. Is an injury to Joe Gomez, which Gareth Southgate said happened with no one around him, which is concerning, I think, from a football perspective, um, is that the end of Liverpool's title challenge, Gregor? No, I wouldn't go that far. But, I mean, because partly because we've got maybe six or seven weeks until the transfer window opens and, and their hand will be very much forced now, Liverpool's, because they're relying upon two two kids, essentially, who well have stepped in and, and, and performed ad- admirably so far. Um, I think if you were to rely upon those two players and Matip, who is also injury prone uh, for the rest of the season, then yes, I think you'd be looking at a serious hole in Liverpool's defence and a big, big issue. Um, but I, as I say, I think the fact that we're not too far away from the transfer window reopening, and I'm sure they will, Liverpool, as canny as they've been in the transfer market in the past, I'm sure they will be ready and waiting to pounce on some on some player to improve them and to give them the the kind of the the signing that they need because it, you know. To lose two players, you know, two players of that kind of quality and that standing in Liverpool's defence in quick succession, it's going to be it would be a blow for any team, but for Liverpool, 
obviously Van Dijk was, is a talisman and Gomez uh, is another player who pl- who's got, plays with the pace and the kind of tactical intelligence to play the high line that they play and the, you know losing both of them it really is enormous so uh, but personally I think it's not enough to say they're out of the title race no James they still in it Oh, very much so. Um, I mean, it's it is going to be interesting. Gregor touched on the on the January window. It's, it, Liverpool have their recruitment. I think they've had very few misses in the last um, three or four years. That every almost every player they've brought in has been a been a success, and that's down to planning and identification and lining up the targets. Now, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if Liverpool hadn't lined someone else up in the defensive areas um, for the summer, say, and that might be a target that they've got to accelerate and it will mean spending money. And we all know how, I mean, I know the, the, the pandemic has changed things slightly, but teams generally have to pay over the odds in, in January and people will know the, the situation Liverpool are in. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting to see if they will um, sort of splash the cash um, to use a very sort of cliche phrase this, this January to, to fix the problem. Um, Cause I do think it, I, it, it does, it does raise interesting questions about how they might have to set up going forwards because to, with the, the pace of Van Dijk and Gomez in the back line, they can play the high line, but even with those two players in at the start of the season, that was starting to be exploited anyway. So it's going to be interesting to see how they adapt tactically and whether Klopp has to actually change the approach of the team or whether he or whether he, he sticks by the approach and and the and the two young players williams and phillips who who come in are, are able to adapt to that going forward but i mean it's it's, it's a risk because Mat- also matip is not the most consistent in terms of appearances and um i think fabinho can slot in there when he's back in i think i think fabinho is a is a fine replacement um in the short term but i i think they have the only the only option for them is to buy. And what what really will interest me is whether, look, Liverpool is a premium team. It's whether they go and get a premium signing. And usually you can't get a premium player in January full stop. If you do, you do pay massively over the odds. And even though they've paid some big money for the likes of Alisson and Van Dijk, I'm not sure given, as you mentioned, James, the current financial and economic climate, whether they will spend big on a centre-back they always strike me. I think Jurgen Klopp always strikes me as someone who will um, take it all on board and say, we'll fight through this. And there is a little bit of me that thinks he might try and get through the the season without buying anyone. Um, Because I can't, you know, I think of maybe Upamecano at Leipzig as being the one, but, um, and, and he'll probably cost 45 million quid in, in, in January, whether that's a bargain or not is fine. But for me as a player, if I were going into that environment, what am I, what am I being signed for? You know, and that's the thing. Am I being signed as an emergency panic buy or am I being signed because you want me to be a premium player and a starter in your side? And that's the question that a premium player would have to weigh up. Going to give Liverpool is great, you know, for any player at the moment, but not if you're going to sit on the bench, I, you know, not if you're a top player. So, so, who goes in there who is going to start because otherwise they're going to buy a player that's probably not any different to what they've currently got in their squad. The only thing here is I think Liverpool will have those premium players on the radar already and will probably have let those premium players know that they're on the radar because they work so far ahead with transfers. Um, you know, that they, they, you can see that with Diogo Jota. It was somebody that they, they'd scouted, lined up. And I was surprised when they signed him just from the point of view of the, the, the money they paid. But it did show that they are willing to press a button on a transfer maybe slightly earlier than they wanted to when the timing is right, when the deal is, is, is right, and when the opportunity is there, which is what they did with Jota. So people like Upamecano, which I think Klopp does like, and, and there'll be other targets, they'll, they'll have been on the ra- they'll have been on that Michael Edwards radar for, for you know, 18 months, and their agents probably know about it. So it's not maybe so hard a sell to go to these guys and, and in January and say, look, we want you now, because they'll, I think they'll already know that they were wanted in the first place. Um, and it's just a case of saying, right, we want to do the transfer a bit bit earlier than than we thought. I think I, I think you know that if they, they 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 did show with Jota that they will make allowances and spend the money earlier than they wanted to if it's if it's really necessary, um, and they probably are going to need to. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Just for the number of games, as, as much as anything else, some kind of patched up scenario where 
Fabinho plays or Henderson plays at the back, I think if Gomez and, and Van Dijk are out, they, they will have to. Nathaniel Phillips isn't in the Champions League squad, I don't think, because um, they were. I think he was on his way out of the. He was on his way out of the club, and and the move fell through, and he remained at the club. So there is actually, it, just in terms of fighting on on all fronts, they can't. If it got down to the point where they'd have to be playing Phillips and Williams at centre half, they can't actually do that in the Champions League anyway. Not at least until the knockout stages, when I think you can you can um, submit a new squad. So so it's it, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, I think I do think though, whoever comes in would 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 already kind of be. You know, it, it, should everyone be fit? I think would would have a very good chance of making their case as a first choice starter because I think before his injury, Gomez's form had been um, a bit patchy, um, and as I, as I mentioned before, um, Matip's injury history—he's not been able to play a, a consistent run of games in in recent seasons. Um, and as Johnny mentions, Fabinho and Henderson are not. And not long-term options there at all. They're midfielders, so so I think there is a there is a place alongside Van Dyke to be claimed when everyone's fit. So I do think I do think it's it's not a difficult sell for someone to come in this January. What do we think about this is going to do to the kind of anger of Klopp and Guardiola? Also, Nathan Aki was injured uh, playing for Holland, so we kind of they were already expressing their rage about having no five, not having five substitutes, and more players are going off and getting injured in these international international fixtures so you know this whole this issue is not going away about the about the the schedule of games and what's been expected uh, from players and and it seems that every passing week there's a new injury and and uh, i just wonder what this is going to do to their to the anger felt by Klopp and Guardiola already if you look at it the the, the biggest concentration of fixtures is about to come you know we we've we've not even seen the worst of it yet it's this patch between the November internationals and March that you'll get the biggest um, sort of you know run of, run of games so there's going to be even more injuries I'd have thought in, 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 the, in the time ahead and, and the moods of Klopp and Guardiola towards us will, will darken further there was lots of conversation and debate on social media a little bit earlier on and last night about whether these internationals in fact any internationals should have been played this season whether the schedule's too much and and the friendlies in particular a little bit silly i mean my view on it is everyone wants their money you know international fa's are no different to clubs clubs wanted their money the efl wanted their money for the carabao cup which let's be honest that that didn't really need to happen this season the papa john's trophy is still going on even though the efl's got loads of games in it you know everyone has sold games for broadcasters in advance you know even the suggestion was made to me earlier on today that broadcasters should have said it's okay and I, but what you know what are broadcasters then meant to tell the advertisers who are expecting content to put their advertising around i mean everyone has to carry on with their business and this is the business of the game equally having heard jürgen klopp and pep guardiola and i know we spoke about it earlier in this week no one wants to give the money back you know no one's saying we'd rather not play take the money you know everyone wants to take the money in so the idea that, look, I can understand from a player's perspective, it's a lot of games, it's a short space of time, there has not been preparation, there's not enough time on the training ground either from the results we've seen. But this is the business of football now and people wanted the economy to be up and running and it is. It does seem farcical that um, this the, the, the friendly, the England friendly is being played um, tonight um, because it just would have been as soon as as soon as the first the original fixture against New Zealand was um, was cancelled. It would have, it just made so much sense to just give the players a break. Um, and I know there is I know there were I think there were broadcasting commitments um, of course, but it's just this is where you, there does need to be a bit of common sense. And and why couldn't you know for the sake of one friendly, why could that not have just been deferred to next year? or played at another point to fulfill that commitment. It just, it just seems when players seem to be dropping like flies as they are, um, as they are now at, at particularly at the big clubs, but you know, ev- everyone's suffering, everyone's suffering injury problems. Oh, it just seems ridic- utterly ridiculous that this game's being played. It's a house of cards, mate. You, you cancel one game, then you cancel two. Yeah. It becomes oh, three. No, no one wants but to break you, the contract. But you've got that wider, in, the wider question of whether international football should be being played. And the fact that I think mm. England Iceland is going to be taking place in Germany is, is equally farcical as well. And it just, it, it, the whole, the whole thing is a kind of, the, the whole thing just seems utterly impractical for this time, particularly when um, 
we're currently under a national lockdown ourselves. Mm. But the money, <laughs> think of the money. Yes, yes. Listen, you can save some money. Enjoy more of our sports uh, journalism, award-winning no less, uh, from the Times and the Sunday Times today and get one month free. Yes, sign that contract. We won't break it. Um, go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's continue our conversation around international football England with the friendly against the Republic of Ireland that, in the opinion of James, should just not be happening. They've got Nations League games to come as well against Belgium and Iceland. But 17-year-old Jude Bellingham uh, from Borussia Dortmund, we all know him from Birmingham City last season, 44 games for the Blues last year, just 11 so far for Dortmund this season, three starts in the Bundesliga but he's 17 years old and he was called into the England squad earlier this week after injury to James Ward-Prowse. And there's been lots of talk this week already about the players who who aren't involved with the England squad, the likes of James Madison and Ross Barkley. But Jude Bellingham being called up from the under-21s seemed prudent and convenient for Gareth Southgate, who did the same thing with Rhys James last time around. And he virtually played his way into being an England starter. And I know he's, he's a few years older than Jude Bellingham. But on Bellingham, is it too soon, do you think, for him to be involved, Gregor? Or is it, for me, it's a player who England need in the way that he plays, regardless of his age? You know, I think when you you can look at the... When, player, when England have done this with players in the past, and it, it has been kind of upon reflection, you think maybe sometimes... You know, Theo Walcott leaps to mind it was too early. And um, the thing is... Jude Bellingham seems to be a pretty kind of special one-off individual in that the the first word that comes to to everyone's lips when they speak about Jude Bellingham, both as a character and as in his performances, is is his maturity. Because, I mean, I I watched him a few times for Birmingham last season and it is astonishing. I remember you, you watch the game and you think, you can't believe that he was 16 at that time. He played like an adult. He kind of... He was physically capable enough. He was, um, you know, really driving the team forward because he's so fit and athletic. Um, and then afterwards, I spoke to Pep Clotet, the manager, and he, he reminded us that he'd grown two and a half centimetres in that in the first six months of that season. And you go, crikey, he's, you know, he's still he's still growing. He's still uh, <laughs> adolescent. So, um, so I, I don't, with, with Jude Bellingham, I don't have any, any doubts that he's he's ready both physically or kind of psychologically and mentally because you know everyone says he's a really good kid and he's been brought very well and um and all that kind of thing and yes he is a kind of player that I don't I'm not sure England really have it's midfield players often fall into into certain kind of categories now nowadays you're either the kind of defensive holding midfielder or you're a player who plays more in advance I think he could do both but in the advanced role he's also kind of I think he even spoke in an interview with the Times last week about how much he's learning from uh, Lucien Favre because because of the kind of the tactical working about the pressing and stuff. So he's a he, as an advanced midfielder, very kind of modern capabilities in his in the way that he presses and hounds and but he's also got a bit of craft about him and he can create chances and and score goals. So you know I think also Southgate has a track record now of inviting players in to the camp quite young to to have a look at them and for them to 
to sort of become involved in the group. So I don't see this as a mistake. And, I, you know, I think I'm sure he won't let anyone down at all. And I think he's got a big future for England personally. I, I think I think Southgate um, puts a lot of faith in the uh, in the sort of pathway process with England more than any manager that I can remember in recent seasons. He seems players who've kind of earned their stripes at 18s, 19s, 21s. They, it's almost, it's more of a pathway for for the England national team than it kind of has been in the past, where maybe club form has been recognised more. And I think players like uh, someone like Ross Barkley, who's had a very good start to to the season for Villa, could probably count themselves slightly unlucky that they're not in this squad. Um, and 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 the fact that um, the, the the fact that you know he 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 has. I think some of his best performances in the last couple of seasons have actually been in an England shirt um, rather than with his club. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't have a problem at all with him calling up Bellingham. I think, pra- I think pragmatically, it's easier to just call someone who you've already called up to the under twenty ones who's going to be at St George's Park anyway and, and, and bring them in. But equally, I mean, I, I, you think back all the way to Euro '96, and I think in, around the time. Uh, Terry Venables squad. Terry Venables had um, a young Frank Lampard and a young Rio Ferdinand around that squad when they were when they were 15, 16 years old, um, just to give them a taste of, of what it was like. They weren't obviously they weren't in the official squad. Similarly, at the twenty eighteen World Cup, I think Foden, uh, Ryan Sessegnon, and Mason Mount went out to Russia to spend some time with the players. It's all about developing a pathway. And I think Southgate has a, Southgate who was in that Euro 96 squad will have seen that happen. I think he's, he more than anyone also having been under 21 manager is creating, it's almost like a, it almost feels like the England youth levels are more like a club academy now than they ever have been before. It feels like the whole thing is a pathway. And I think if, if that's the blueprint that St. George's Park was trying to create, I think it's good to promote that. It's a call-up that makes sense to me. I mean, he's, for a start, he's playing pretty regularly for Dortmund. He's played more minutes than Marco Royce and um, Brandt this this year. He's, so that, that tells you he's good enough. For, for, forget about the age. But then I think most importantly, is what, you know, as Gregor said, it's the type of player he is. It's not somebody that England have necessarily got. Um, Gareth's got... Uh, defensive midfielders and he's tried to play two of them in recent games in that 3-4-3 it just hasn't hasn't really worked it's not given England enough connectivity if you want to put it that way between the back and the front so playing Rice and Phillips or Rice and Henderson together just is a bit flat I think there's a need for that connective player in there um, Harry Winks was supposed to be that player hasn't quite emerged as as that um, so let's see if Bellingham can do it with, with his, his sort of almost box to box kind of old fashioned nature but <clears throat> um with with all that that sort of talent um to add in and, and the understanding of the pressing game there's a lot that makes sense i think the only player that i feel maybe could have been brought in instead is ross barkley because of how well he's playing for villa but <clears throat> he's doing that in a number 10 role he's not playing in in, in the role that um that we're talking about here you know he's, he's, he's found his best form again since moving into the the, the very area where we're england have, you know over provisioned so i do feel sorry for for bartley but you know, he, he's he's maybe not exactly this 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 fit. So I, I think let's you know let let's see let's see what Bellingham can do. I'm happy to stick my neck out on Jude Bellingham already. I tr- I believe that Jude Bellingham will be as effective for England as Steven Gerrard. Yes, I'll call it now. Why not? Everyone else gets called a future England captain. Why not call Jude Bellingham a future England captain? Um, Look, my tongue's a little bit in my cheek, but I think you're all right in terms of positionally and how he approaches the game, how he sees the game and what he wants to do. And the reason he reminds me of Steven Gerrard is simply because he wants to have an effect at both ends of the pitch. And if you look at the England squad, and, and you're right, in midfielders, central midfielders, generally, there are a lot who feel like their jobs at either end of the pitch. They're either a holding midfielder, a defensive midfielder, or they want to be an attacking midfielder, or maybe not a traditional number 10, but certainly a creative player in the way that we've maybe seen before in the past. But in England squad, maybe only Jordan Henderson is a player who really sees his role as being at both ends of the pitch. Um, And I think Bellingham is, is the next one that England have off the conveyor belt who can do that. 
So I, I'm eager to see him play for England. I'd love to see him against the Republic of Ireland, even if it's for five minutes off the bench. But why not? Why not be the first person to call him a future England captain? Because if he does make his debut, <laughs> everyone will be saying it the next morning. And I just want to get there first. Um, I'm just saying it. I mean, does anyone disagree? No, I mean, the, the thing I would say is that every stage of his very young career, he has been ahead of the curve massively. Like, you know, he's playing up to age groups when he was, I think when he was 13, he was playing for the under 15s at Birmingham. He played for the under 23s when he was 15. He made, he's the youngest ever player. He broke Trevor France's record when he made his debut, which we have to remember was only 15 months ago. The start of last season, he, he made his debut. Um, and playing 44 games in your first season in the championship as a 16 year old. Jaden Sancho at Dortmund took six months to make his debut for and really get into the swing of things at Dortmund. You're saying only 11 games. He's played 11 games as a 17 year old having just moved to Germany and playing in the Bundesliga and the Champions League. He's the youngest player, English player to play in the Champions League as well. So he's just knocking down the records and you know this is the next step for him. And I think personally, I, I'm not sure. I've not seen enough with him kind of impact uh, with the ball as a Gerrard yet, but he's, he is so similar in that it's his dynamism and the, his ability to get around the pitch. And as you say, to, you know, to snap into tackles when he has to, as well as, um, as well as get on the end of things in the box and score goals. So yeah, exciting. It's England have got, England have got some really exciting young players. You just need to know how to put them onto the pitch, I think. Yeah, I mean, that will be, that's the conundrum uh, for Gareth Southgate at the moment. And um, I think we could talk at length about what, how and how he should be playing and who he should be playing. But I think that conversation will come over the, the next few um, episodes of the game podcast. Um, but this is the moment for Gregor and Johnny, because it's time to talk Scotland, who have their biggest game, as I say, in, in well over a decade. They haven't been to an international tournament since 1998. They're unbeaten in eight games, going in to face Serbia in a Euro 2020 playoff final, just 90 minutes away from having that feeling that the likes of Northern Ireland and Wales have had in recent years. Um, so, gentlemen, how are you feeling? You know, catching up with the likes of your fellow home nations. It's, it's so close, Johnny. Yeah, I feel a bit sick, to be honest. Um, <laughs> last the last time we were in this position where we only had one game uh, between us and, and a championship was against Italy in, in 2007 and we managed to concede after 75 seconds. So let's let's hope we last a little bit longer tonight. But um, if I can be as... I mean, it feels very brave for any Scot to, to be optimistic about the national team. But the last three internationals and actually what, what had been going on before that under Steve Clark has made me feel there's something there um, to an extent that I haven't felt probably since Craig Brown. Steve Clark reminds me of Craig Brown um, <clears throat> in the in the way that he's, he's figured out that to, to be a successful smaller nation, you have to be really hard to play against, hard to beat, well-structured, and you need to have a, a kind of spirit um, of, of a sort of family spirit in the squad. We've seen Northern Ireland do it and Wales do it. And Steve Clark's kind of gone and done all that and there's something solid about the Scotland team in the way it plays but the way it, the players play for each other that makes me feel they can um, cope with a challenge like um, like they face tonight the, the, the one thing and it's it's killing me a little bit is Ryan Fraser being out because yeah. he's the pace and he's the he's the threat of running in behind which <clears throat> Steve was using so well um, allowing, you know, Lyndon Dykes and, and the midfield to, 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 to get a bit of space with that threat of, of a Fraser move going in behind. And Scotland have just lacked pace for 20 years or whatever. So when we get a quick play, we've got to be able to use them. And him being out is almost almost the worst injury we could have, in my opinion. Um, but there are good players to, to, put in, to put in the place. It's just we'll have to play a little bit differently. But it's going to be a grim... Uh, grim game from a nervous point of view tonight. Um, I thought you were going to say it's a spectacle. <laughs> There's every chance of that too. Oh, but so what? As, I, hope it, I hope it is grim as a spectacle. That gives us a chance. Yeah, I think Steve Clark deserves huge credit because it's a, it's been a quite a quick turnaround. He had a tough start as well, a really really poor start to his time in in charge, and you know in the last. 
last eight games or so, he's kind of really turned things around and everyone given everyone this sort of bit of optimism and hope. And I think he's a good fit. He's kind of Michael Grant did a, a really nice interview with him for the Times this week, and he's just got no ego. And he's tried to he's tried to almost say, you know, we always we always t- do ourselves down. We talk we're kind of a bit down down upon ourselves, even when we're talking about the the Scottish League. And he's saying, well, look, I, you know, he managed Kilmarnock. He did really impressive work with Kilmarnock. And he's saying, you know, I've seen players there, and there's there's some average players in the Premier League. There's some pretty average players in the Championship, and there's some players in the Scottish League. You know, he's O'Donnell, the right back. He's called up and. And he's, you know, he's done all right. He's, he's, he's given people a chance that others, you think, you know, if you're not playing for the old farmer, you're not playing for the big teams in Scotland, considering in the last game, you know, he's given people a chance and they've stepped up to the plate because they want to do it. It's, and part, half of international football is the players turning up and wanting to be there and wanting to do it and wanting to play for their country. And he's got that now. So that's a big thing. I agree, Fraser's a big loss because he, he's formed a good relationship with Dykes and McGinn behind them. We've got Tierney, Tierney's back, McKenna back at the back as well. Um, so I have I have some hope. I mean, obviously you look at Serbia and they've got some some really talented players, Tadic and you know Blinkovic, Savic and Kolarov, Mitrovic. They're You'll big, <laughs> yeah, big strong side as well. Um, so yeah, look, they're they're a good side, but it's not going to be the intimidating arena that we would have been stepping into with 50,000 fans there. Um, the last three home games, I think they've drawn against Ukraine, Turkey and lost to Hungary. There's a glimmer of hope there. So, you know, that's what we're going to have to hold on to very dearly. <laughs> One of the things, that I, and I don't, know, I don't know how James feels about this, but, but my parents aren't weren't born in the UK, so I'm... I'm. I feel very British, and I'm very passionate about all of the home nations getting to tournaments. And I think they're fantastic things. And I watch a lot of rugby union, and the the you know I love the Six Nations, and I love the, the aspects of us going up against one another. And I don't maybe feel it the same way as, for example, the Republic of Ireland fans might feel tonight playing against England, or even Scotland playing against England. I'd love to beat Scotland if we're playing at football, by the way. But also. If we're going to a major tournament, I want all the home nations to be there, if I'm perfectly honest. So I'm keenly watching the games tonight, Northern Ireland and Scotland as well. James, are you going to get out your fake tartan hat to celebrate tonight if they go through? Well, uh, right at the start of my career, I spent six months working in Glasgow and um, absolutely fell in love with the city. Um, I covered... um, teams as far flung as I think I did a cold Tuesday night at Inverness Caledonian Thistle um, so I've, so I've kind of I I, I, I I very much fell in love with Scotland during my time there and, and so I'm and I, I'm like I, I'm with you Hugh I, I, I want all the home nations to get to the tournaments because I think it just makes for a better spectacle particularly as I think there is a, the, the scenario could be that Scotland would be in England's group am I, am I wrong? So, so, so that would yeah. be. I mean, you know, we sadly no fans, or unlikely they're going to be fans at Euro twenty twenty one. But um, I mean, the uh, during the lockdown when they replayed all the Euro ninety six matches, I'm sadly just too young to remember um, Euro ninety six. But the the uh, the the matches, the match against Scotland, I watched the full ninety minutes back, um, and it was just it was a proper carnival of football, and it was and it was amazing. It made even watching. 20 plus year old footage um it made your hairs stand on end it was incredible the atmosphere was amazing and 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 i just think there's some there is something special even in the the sort of the the england scotland matches that we've had um in recent years i remember there was the one where i think uh ricky lambert scored the winner from his uh, off the bench on his debut and then there but that was a even though there was a there was a big golf in quality between the two sides it was a hard fought three england had to battle to win that game three two and then there was a qualifier not that long ago where i think england needed harry kane to do some magic in the last few minutes to rescue a draw so i mean it is it it, it, uh, the, the, it it's like a it, it's like a, a good old-fashioned club rivalry it kind of it brings the best out of both teams. It makes it, it's a proper leveller of a fixture. So, so the key tonight for Steve Clark is to tell his team, lads, pretend it's England. <laughs> it's only England. 
Yeah, lads, it's only England. <laughs> lads, it's only England. Uh, they, 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 they never, and this is the thing, Scotland will never give England an easy game. Um, and that's maybe part of the rivalry as well, because they will always raise it for a, a game against England. And I am old enough to remember Euro 96. And I am, I mean, I'm from Wembley and I grew up 10 minutes away. And I mean, it's, it's one of the great memories of my childhood. And that game, going into it, I think even as a, as a young kid, you know, I was 10 years old, so I was old enough to watch the news and see that it was massive. It was just, it was just massive. It was massive. But the players in Scotland's team as well were like players that were so well known to me. I was 10 years old, but all the, you know, all the players at Celtic or, or Rangers, you knew it was a great era for both of those teams in terms of European football. And then we had lo- we had like Premier League winners in the Scotland team at that point in time, you know, well-known names for football fans. And it it felt like a and it, it felt like they were as good and maybe that that was the last time they were sort of on paper as good as England. So it was a massive game. Do you remember it, Johnny? You you were probably as young as me, ten years old. No, Hugh, I, I reported on it. I'm afraid. Um, right at the well, no, no, that's right. Right at the start of my career, it was my first year as a as a journalist, and I was covering it for Scotland on Sunday. Uh, and my job was actually to cover England, so I was I was the second man um, covering Scotland's opponent. So I was with the England camp most of the time. But I was at that game, um, and it was just you know your, your memories are right. James is right. It was an incredible. Um, occasion spectacle it felt so big the players on the pitch were were such big players on both teams you had Gary McAllister and missing his penalty um you had Gaza's performance you know you Colin Hendry at the back John Collins Ali McCoist up front for Scotland a really really good England team and, and a really good Scotland team and, and Euro 96 was you know that was such a sort of reawakening for football in 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 this whole country and the presence of that Scotland England. I mean the tournament had so much, but the the presence of Scotland and England as as a as a big part of that tournament right at the start gave it a real impetus and, and momentum that um, that that really helped and we could get it again. You know, with, with I think that, I think Scotland England would be the second game in the group stage. Um, and I'm not clear whether it would be at Hamden or, or Wembley. Um, I, I think that might still be to be decided, but it would be incredible. Um, and you know with Steve Clark that he would ensure that England had a tough game. Our players aren't on the level that they were in 96, but uh, it would still be a, a, a really uh, tough occasion, really tough match. And, and it would just be, I mean, I, I can't convey what it's like when your country hasn't been to a tournament for 20 years it's just 22 years it's 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 agonizing so just just being there just being there being part of it would be unbelievable mm. I mean there is a possibility that things come together and, and the world is in a far better place and yes. football's in a far better place by then and that would be I mean we talk about ah. the summer the, 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 of 96 you know if England Scotland play next summer all of us being released from the shackles of the last year or so it would be, I mean, just just remarkable, and, th- and thankfully for all of us, we'll probably all be there. So um, it would give us the chance of, of reliving '96 as well. Uh, best of luck to Scotland and Northern Ireland tonight, um, Scotland fans. Look, stick your neck out, predict. What do you think would happen? There was a little bit of me earlier on today as well that felt we needed to give a little bit of credit to Alec McLeish because I think he actually got Scotland to the playoffs. Um, but Steve Clark, you're right. Gregor has done a remarkable job. How do you expect them to play tonight, Gregor? Be very hard to beat. <laughs> Not very uh, expansive. Still trying to play in the break. I think Christie will probably come in for Fraser. McGinn kind of breaking things up and bombing forward and supporting Dykes and Dykes being a big handful up front. You know, I think I think if we can... I, think, I don't think we're going to concede many. I know that's probably famous last words. But, you know, so if, even if we score a goal, I think we'll probably... That'll at least get us to penalties. <laughs> so, um, and you know we've got we've got 100 record in them, so I take that all day long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Johnny, similar feelings. Um, yeah, a gritty sort of bits and pieces game, full of um, full of uh, sort of fouls and set pieces, and Lee Griffiths to come off the bench and <laughs> to you know. At the, at the age of 96, scored his first goal in, 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 in 12 years from a free kick into the top corner. Um, that's the scenario.
We can dream. We can dream. It's going to be a big game. Scotland taking on Serbia. Northern Ireland facing Slovakia. Good luck, guys. Gregor Robertson, Jonathan Northcroft and James Restall. Thank you for being with me. We'll be back on Monday. I'm sure we'll be looking back at all the international football that's to come over the next few days. And just a reminder, we'll be analysing and dissecting all of it in the Times and the Sunday Times. You can subscribe right now for more of the latest news. Search online thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game and you'll get yourself one month three. We'll see you on Monday. Take care. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.